Open with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Title of the message tonight, Two Destinies, The Lake of Fire or the New Jerusalem. Let me start with a quote from John Walvoord. Though many have attempted to find some scriptural way to avoid the doctrine of eternal punishment, as far as the biblical revelation is concerned, there are only two destinies for human souls. One is to be with the Lord, and the other is to be separated from God in the lake of fire. This solemn fact is motivation for carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, whatever the cost, and doing everything possible to inform and challenge people to receive Christ before it is too late. What a tremendous concept that there will only be two destinies. It's either heaven or the lake of fire. And in this passage tonight, we start in verses 20, uh, tw- chapter 20, verse 11, and we'll look at the last five verses in Revelation 20, the first eight verses in Revelation 21, and these two places of eternal destiny are found back to back in this passage. So the first point, the judgment and punishment of those who are lost. First, or the last five verses in Revelation 20. We see, first of all, the judge. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The word them at the end of that sentence is speaking of earth and heaven. John described the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4. The throne is mentioned more than 30 times in the book of Revelation. This time, in Revelation 20, in verse 11, it's different than the throne previously mentioned. Specifically, this is referred to as the great white throne. The Lord Jesus Christ must be the one who's sitting upon this throne. While all three members of the Trinity are God, John 5.22 says, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So I believe it will be the Lord Jesus Christ sitting upon this throne. Believers, we already looked at what happens to believers. The rapture of the church, they are examined at a, a judgment seat called the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the word Bema in the Greek is translated judgment seat. That took place after the rapture, before the marriage supper of the Lamb. The believers come from the Bema seat, robed in white, symbols of our righteousness in Christ, and that's how the bride is presented to Christ. So the, judgment, the, uh, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where believers will be during the tribulation period. Uh, there, is, uh, there are some who say that the Bema seat is just a place of rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. The Bema was a, a raised platform where the judges would sit on, at athletic games, and that's where they would award the crowns to the victors. 
It was also a place of legal decision. In John 19.13, it's the place where Pilate judged Christ. And so it's a place of reward, yes, but it's also a place where our works will be judged. The unsaved are judged here at the great white throne that we've read about in verse 11. The earth and heaven fled away from the face of Christ who's on the throne. They flee away because of the majesty, because of the glory of Jesus Christ. When we take these words along with what John sees in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth, this appears to be the destruction of the first heaven and the first earth. He uses that terminology for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. The word passed away there is a word that means to perish or as it's translated here, to pass away. Parerkomai is the word. The word is used also in Matthew 24, 35, where we read, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Some think the Lord will recreate the new out of the old, the new heavens and the earth out of the old heavens and earth. But the wording here, and also in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 12, seems like there will be a destruction of this heaven and earth as we know it. Let me read that section in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away, there's our word parerkomai again, with a great noise, a rushing sound, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That word melt is a word that means they will be loosed, they will be released. So there is... A, uh, description here of, of possibly a nuclear type of a, of a reaction where atoms are split. Uh, that seems to be that, that word melt, is that uh, loosing. And, and also notice the fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein, that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens shall, uh, being on fire, shall be dissolved. That's that word loosed again, released. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And so we have that description where it seems like this old earth is going to be dissolved in a, in a, uh, in a nuclear reaction. Notice the judged at the first part of verse 12. Who are they? And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. So we have in, in this section, the dead. If you look at the second half of the verse, again, we have that reference to the dead. In verse 13, we read, the dead whom the sea gave up, all those who didn't have a burial in the ground, the sea will give up. And also in verse 13, the dead whom death and hell delivered up. The word death there is thanatos. And then hell is the word Hades. That's talking about the intermediate state of those who die, those who are unbelievers, those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. That's where they die in their sin until they're called to stand before God in this final judgment, the great white throne judgment. Then at the end of that judgment, when their names are not found in the Lamb's book of life, They'll be cast into the lake of fire where they will suffer for eternity. These who are the dead must be the wicked dead. They were not raised at the first resurrection. 
We saw that in Revelation chapter 20 in verse 5. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the, thou the thousand years were finished. The rest of the dead are those unbelievers of all ages who have died. Now they're raised to stand before God at this great white throne judgment. John Walford writes, The fact that these dead have not been raised before is evidence in itself that they do not have eternal life and that their judgment is a judgment of their works. The statement, Death and Hades gave up the dead, means that the physical bodies of the unsaved will be joined with their spirits that have already been in Hades. The mention of the sea giving up the dead makes it clear that regardless of how far a body has disintegrated, it will nevertheless be resurrected for this judgment. The Apostle John wrote in John 5, 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. This is the resurrection that we're reading about tonight, where the evil dead, small and great, everyone who's ever lived without Christ, they've died, they're small, maybe unknown, or the great, those who are well-known, everyone will stand before God. Walvoord says their standing posture means that they are now about to be sentenced. That's still the procedure in courtrooms today, isn't it? You hear those words, will the defendant please rise? And then the judgment is handed down. And that's what people are standing for in front of the great white throne when Jesus will finally judge this is a condemnation that man was warned about that would come. We all know John chapter 3 and verse 16. Say it with me out loud if you would. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me follow the next two verses. You might know them, but let me read them. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. We were just talking about the love of God. He didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Custer describes the scene. The spirits of all the wicked dead must stand before that throne. They are suspended in space before the throne. There is no place to stand and no place to hide. Heaven and earth have been dissolved. Notice the evidence in verses 12 and 13. We'll pick up in the second half of verse 12. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Books are records. These are God's books, God's records. He's recorded everything about everyone. 
and his records are always correct. No errors. The books here in the plural record man's works. Men are judged out of the things written in the books according to their works. And then there's another book, and that book is called The Book of Life, the book that records man's salvation. Both believers at the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and unbelievers at the great white throne are judged according to their works. Eternal life in heaven and eternal punishment in hell are determined only by a person's rejection of Jesus Christ and his blood sacrifice for them on the cross or their acceptance. That's the only way a person is in heaven for eternity or the lake of fire for eternity based on whether or not you accept Jesus Christ as Savior. But there are here, I believe, degrees of punishment and degrees of reward. And that's why in each of those places where Christians are at the Bema Seat, where the lost are at the great white throne judgment, our works will be made known. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Christians will be held accountable and rewarded according to their works. Sinners will be held accountable and punished according to their works. In Luke 12, 47 and 48, Jesus told about servants who are ready for their master's return. And the ones who knew what the master wanted him to do, but didn't do it, this one was beaten with many stripes. But the one who didn't know what the master wanted him to do was beaten with few stripes. There seems to be indications all the way through scripture that because of this judgment of works, it will be according to what we have done. There will be degrees of reward in heaven. There will be degrees of punishment in hell. Notice the punishment in verses 14 and 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So death and hell is the word here. It's Hades, again, that intermediate place. We're cast into the lake of fire. That's the permanent place of punishment. It's called here the second death. Those not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. A.T. Robertson says, there's no room here for soul sleeping. Some people have said, well, your soul just goes to sleep and you'll be asleep and at rest forever. No room here for soul sleeping, for an intermediate state, for a second chance, or for an annihilation of the wicked. That means you're, you're punished, it's over. It's not eternal. Custer answers the question about whether this punishment is eternal. He says, the idea of annihilation is a man-made myth. There is not a single verse in the scripture that teaches a spirit that God has created can pass out of existence. The Lord Jesus taught that a believer who dies may expect angels to escort his spirit to the place of comfort and fellowship with other saints. Luke chapter 16, verse 22 and verse 25. He also clearly taught that the wicked person may expect to be in a place of torment, bitter regrets, unsatisfied wishes. Luke 16, 22 and through 31. The Bible clearly teaches conscious, eternal punishment for the wicked men and, and angels. Let's consider this book of life. 
It's also called the Lamb's Book of Life. There's a section in the Old Testament where Moses asked God to blot his name out of the Book of the Living, if that were possible. I don't believe that's the Book of Life. Moses says in Exodus 32, 32, Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and there's a dash there, it's the only unfinished sentence in the Bible. And then he says, And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Wearsby says, After dealing with the people, Moses returned to the Lord on the mountain and offered to give up his own life that the people might be spared. When a person dies, his or her name is removed from the book of life. The book of life, or of the living, should not be confused with the Lamb's book of life, which records the names of the saved. The names of Christians are recorded in this book of life. When we read in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul was urging one person to be a mediator between two women in the church who are, who are not getting along. And he said, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers. So he's talking about these two ladies. They labored in the gospel with Paul. They labored with Clement, probably not necessarily the bishop of Rome that we know as Clement. There are a lot of people named Clement. They labored also with fellow laborers who were genuine Christians. And so every indication is that these were saved, especially when we get to that last word, that last phrase, whose names are in the book of life. There are seven references in the book of Revelation that talk about this book, the Lamb's book of life. The books will be opened for proof that God's judgment is righteous. Our passage tonight in verse 12 of chapter 20 and verse 15 of chapter 20. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book of, is open, which is the book of life. Revelation 20, 15, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we have here a list of the names of people who are indeed born again. When did that happen? Some people say, well, I know the song. There's a new name written down in glory. It must have happened the day I got saved. That's basically what I grew up thinking, and that could be true. In Revelation 21 and verse 27, we find that heaven's citizens are recorded in the book of life. And there shall in no wise enter into it, he's talking about the new Jerusalem there, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's your passport to heaven. Your name has to be in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who worship the beast in Revelation 13.8 do not have their names in the Book of Life. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, speaking of the Antichrist, Revelation 13.8, whose names are not written in the life of the Lamb, in the Book of Life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. In Revelation 22 and verse 19, those who add to the book of Revelation have their names removed. Punishment for changing the prophetic message of the book of Revelation. Revelation 22:19 says, it's a warning at the very end of the book, 
And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Obviously, a person who's going to deny what the Bible says in the book of Revelation is an unbeliever. And so that's why that verse is there. Another verse, those who wonder at the punishment of the beast don't have their names in the book of life. Revelation 17 and verse 8. The beast which thou sawest and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So we have that verse. Revelation 17, 8, saying that their names were not written in the book from the foundation of the world. Some verses talk about the name being blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. To blot means to erase by rubbing, to put a hole in the paper because of trying to remove the ink. Revelation 3, verse 5 says that. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. As a teenager, I went to, with my dad to West Virginia, where we were, uh, there was an evangelist there. People were beginning a church. They were starting a church. They were meeting in a school auditorium. And the evangelist there preached the message, when your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. It was a fascinating message. He took the view that the book is a record of everyone who has ever lived or will live. Every name of every person ever. And there will be a time when that name is blotted out of the book of life. Either when a person dies without Christ or rejects him for the final time. And only God knows when that is. And I remember the evangelist describing as this book, which he described as a scroll, is unrolled. And as, as you look at that and hold it up, you'll, it'll be filled with these blotted out names, these holes that are there of people who were there, but they refused to accept Christ. And forever their name was blotted out of that scroll. Whatever view you take, whether you think everyone's name is there and is blotted out, or the names were there from the foundation of the world, and there are different views along those lines. I can tell you this for certain. Those whose names are missing in the book of life at the great white throne judgment will not enter heaven. I can also tell you this. Those whose names are in the book of life will be in heaven. I can tell you based upon the invitation of Christ recorded in our Bibles that when you come to Christ confessing your sin, trusting his work on the cross to save you, he will save you. Listen to these words in John 6, 37. Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The invitation is always come to Christ. Your name will be in the Lamb's book of life if you do. You will not be condemned along with those at the great white throne judgment. The second part of our message tonight, we go into the next eight verses in Revelation 21. 
And here the reward and prospect of the heavenly Jerusalem for those who are saved. We're just going to start our virtual tour of heaven. You'll have to come back again to to continue the tour. But John has to overcome this huge obstacle as he tries to describe heaven. He's describing something that is beyond words. He's describing a place that no one has seen yet. Heaven is so much different than anything that we know of on earth that as he he sets up these, these parenthetical verses that tell us what won't be there. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21, we have things that are called former things, things that we used to have here in this life that won't be in heaven. And then the other parentheses at the end is in verses 22 through 27, and those are unnecessary things. We won't need the sun. We won't need the moon. And then there are some attempts at comparisons in the middle describing what will be there in verses 10 to 21. Well, we're just looking at verses 1 through 8 tonight. So let's start with the former things that will not be in the new Jerusalem. Verses 1 to 4, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. And here it is, for the former things are passed away. Notice in verse 1, no more sea. Sea is a place of division. Three-fourths of our globe are covered in water. Continents are separated by these immense expanses that divide cultures and peoples. The sea is a place not only of division, but is also a place of destruction. In the days of Noah, the earth was destroyed with a flood. That was God's judgment on the wickedness of mankind, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. The sea is also a place of death. The portion of Revelation 21.1 is often found on the tombstone of a sailor who's been lost at sea. There shall be no more sea. The sea has been the graveyard for many men. Even the Great Lakes have their time of tragic death. November 9, 1913, a hurricane force of 90-mile-an-hour winds created 40-foot waves that drove lake freighters around like corks. Twelve ships were lost. 251 sailors drowned. In heaven, there will be no more sea. No tears, verse 4. There been a lot of suggestions as to why tears are in heaven in the first place. Some people say they're tears of joy. Some people say they're, they're tears of looking around and thinking that someone that you loved and knew would be there, but they're not. There are tears over the loss of the reward, perhaps at the Bema Seat judgment. What I should have done with my life. I don't know what those tears are, but two things I know. In this life, there are tears. Jesus wept. The second thing I know, in heaven, there won't be any more. Criswell says, the more we suffer, the more heaven will mean to us. 
David prayed in Psalm 56, 8, Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? There's that book of record. God knows your tears. He knows your sorrows. In Persia and Egypt, people would catch their tears and keep them in a bottle so that they could show the sorrow that they've been through in life. Tear bottles of alabaster have been discovered in Egyptian tombs. They may, it may have been how the, the woman, the sinful woman of Luke 7, washed the feet of Jesus with her tears. In heaven, be no need to keep those mementos. There will be no tears in heaven. Verse 4 says, no death. Henry Light wrote the verse in the hymn, Abide With Me, Change and Decay in All Around I See. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Everywhere you look, you see the results of sin. The wages of sin is death. Leaves and plants die. They tell us winter is coming. Here in Michigan, we wonder if it'll ever end. In the animal kingdom, little children bury a pet that they loved, they're attached to. Animals prey upon one another. All of that is the result of the fall of man. Because of sin, death came. So sin, death passed upon all men, Romans 5.12. In heaven, there will be no more death. No caskets, no cemeteries, no funerals. Death will be just another one of those former things. Verse 4 says, no more sorrow. What causes sorrow? The burdens that you face each day, the difficulties of the hardships of poverty and crime and disappointments. No more sorrow in heaven. No crying there. The word here differs from the tears that are already wiped away. That was a silent expression of pain and hurt. This is a, a vocal cry. An infant cries when he first comes into the world. The aged die with a vocal cry as well if you've gone through the hospitals. David said in Psalm 18:6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. No more crying in heaven. No pain, no physical pain, no hospitals, no doctor bills, no arthritis, no headaches, no medicine. Put your, put your list of things you're looking forward to on that. No physical pain, no emotional pain. No heartaches over wayward children. No regrets over mistakes. It'll all be over. We come now to verses 5 through 7, and we find overcomers mentioned. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Jesus is the only one who has the authority and the ability to make all things new. And he's going to do that. John was encouraged to write these true and faithful words, absolutely true and therefore reliable, trustworthy. Jesus says, it is done. He doesn't use the same word that he used on the cross when he said it is finished. Here, it is done means it has come to pass. Walvard says the reference is to the work accomplished throughout the whole drama of human history prior to the eternal state. 
Now he identifies himself as the Alpha and Omega. He already made that claim all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 8. He will repeat it in chapter 22 and verse 13. The first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet fit the one who is the beginning and the end of all things. He also says, I am. That's been used as the name of Christ throughout all of John's writings. Jesus offers satisfaction of man's thirst, spiritual thirst. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in Samaria? He said, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus offers the satisfaction of our spiritual thirst. There's a promise to the one who overcomes. Overcometh is the, the Greek verb nikao. You get Nike from that. That was a, a, a person who prevails, who conquers, who wins the victory. The word is used seven times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to those who overcome. It's also used in Revelation 3.21. Uh, it's used eight times for um, for Christ, even as I also overcame and am set down at my father, with my Father in his throne. Here in Revelation 21.7, it says, The saint who is victorious in the end will overcome. He'll in inherit all things. He says, I will be his God, and he will be my son. And we come to verse 8. And in stark contrast with the nikao, the overcomers, are those who will face eternity without Christ. But, verse 8 begins, but the fearful, those who are afraid to take God at his word, the unbelieving, literally that word is faithless, never put their faith in Christ, the abominable, that's from a word that means to be abhorrent in smell. It's someone that God abhors because they've never been saved. And murderers, those criminals guilty of homicide, whoremongers, those who are guilty of immorality, sorcerers, drug users, idolaters, those who worship anything except the true God. And then notice at the end of this list, all liars, those who are consistently telling lies, living in dishonesty. What's their condemnation? They have their place in the lake burning with fire and brimstone or sulfur which is known as the second death. God has warned man of the wages of sin. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus willingly took our sin upon himself. Isaiah 53.6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has shown us how we can be saved. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There are only two places where man will spend eternity. Eternal death in the lake of fire or eternal life in the new Jerusalem. If you're not saved, come to him in faith. Trust him as your personal savior.
Confess him as your Lord. You may not have another opportunity to respond to his invitation. Come while you can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And as we thought of the, the opening paragraph from John Wolverd, we realized that if we really believe in a heaven, if we really believe in a place of eternal torment called the lake of fire, that will motivate us to give the gospel out no matter what the cost. Help us, Lord, to be more burdened for those around us. And if there's one who's hearing this message who has never put their faith in Christ, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.